Hello and welcome to this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost. Each week we bring you the best news, views and interviews with the leaders, CEOs, founders and clinicians who are changing the face of healthcare in the UK and beyond. I am a CEO and founder of a health tech company myself, as regular listeners will know, called PocDoc. PocDoc is actually helping put the show on, so thank you very much. We are at, we, PocDoc allows anyone with a smartphone or tablet to give themselves a quantitative blood test. Uh, starting with a five marker lipid panel and a full cardiovascular assessment. So we're rolling out across the country right now. So it's all very exciting. But thanks to PocDoc for supporting the show. Um, in addition, as always, thank you to everyone for listening. If you're listening live on Health Tech, uh, on, on UK Health Radio, welcome. Um, it's actually UK Health Radio's 10th birthday last week. So can, happy birthday to UK Health Radio. We love being on the sh- we love being on the network. Thank you very much. Um, also, thank you if you're listening on Spotify or Amazon or any of the other podcast platforms, or if you're watching us on YouTube. Thank you very much. Much appreciated. We would not be here without you. So today's show is focused on women's health, and we have Lena Chan on the show. So Lena Chan is the CEO and founder of Parla, P-A-R-L-A, which was actually recently recently acquired or acquired this year anyway by Holland and Barrett. Obviously, everyone pretty familiar with Holland and Barrett. They're on most, most high streets. Lena founded Parler to improve women's access to healthcare information after she suffered multiple pregnancy losses and difficulty conceiving. Um, and Parler addresses both the physical and the mental needs of women during reproductive, um, well, d- d- related to, to reproduction, birth, and, and all of the associated issues. Uh, across 80 different countries. So Lena, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me, Steve. Good, good, good. Okay, so um, I think it's super interesting that we come back to this topic. Um, I've said for a while that we wanted to get more women on the show, so it's great that we have you here. Um, and I think that that your story is really interesting um, because it's probably pretty common to a lot of people listening, I suspect. And so I think what's also interesting about your background is that you started off as an investor, I think, um, both in the US and in Asia, I think, I'm not sure. Um, US and the UK. US and UK. And then you started your own business, but still within healthcare. So I think what would be super interesting is just to hear your, you know, let's hear, if you could just tell us your story just to begin with, and then we can kind of get into more of the details. But why don't we start there? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I was born and raised in Brazil, so Latin America, and I moved to the U.S. Uh, when I was 18 to pursue my uh, university education there. Uh, graduated, went to work for J.P. Morgan at the time, so I started in finance and started working, actually investing in Latin America. So I was part of the private equity team, um, a, a, a kind of invested in the first tech bubble all across okay. um, Latin America. but. That was, you know, it was kind of always had a personality of working very hard. I came from immigrant parents. Um, so it was a lot about kind of, you know, you put effort into one thing and, and, and you try as much as possible to get get that. So I did um, I did that for a number of years in New, in New York and then moved across the pond um, and worked um, here in the UK investing. Went back to business school, met my husband and then moved um, back here uh, to the UK. And it wasn't until we got married and I was 35 and I was like, okay, well, you know, I heard that 35, your fertility starts, you know, your clock starts ticking. Maybe we should kind of um, start having children. It never really occurred to me that um, fertility was going to be a difficult journey for us. Like I came from a family of four siblings, my husband, you know, one of three. 
Right. And it was it was probably the hardest experience that um, I've ever gone through. And that kind of mentality and personality that I had leading up to there of, you know, put effort into it, you get it, um, just didn't work. It doesn't work that yeah. way when it comes to our health and, and, and much less our reproductive health. So um, our first pregnancy, we actually didn't struggle too much to conceive. Um, but then I lost that first pregnancy quite late stage. Um, after six months, I was, you know, showing I was quite big and... I had to I had to give birth um, knowing that um, the baby wasn't going to be alive when I gave birth um, and and it was the first time literally the first time that I walked into the hospital um, and I knew that something was wrong was the first time that I had learned about miscarriage and pregnancy loss wow. and stillbirth so so and you know I considered myself somebody who had was well educated you know was very much kind of like proactive on my health but. I think it just kind of really makes you aware that it's, you know, it's just something that we just don't talk about as much in our society. And once I was in it and I realized, oh my gosh, one in four pregnancies will end in loss. Like it's actually a very common thing that women will go through. Yeah. Um, and it's also something that it's a risk that increases with age. And if we look at kind of like the demographics and when women are starting to have children now, a lot of them are making the exact same decision that I made, right? So they're focusing on their careers, they're going to get their business degree, they're only starting to think about children after they're 35. So actually their chances of having loss is quite high. Um, and that was exactly the case that happened to me. I, you know, my subsequent pregnancy that then took a while to, to conceive, I lost again um, and I lost kind of earlier. Uh, and it, it wasn't any easier having gone through it once didn't mean that the second time was any easier. Uh, and it really, really affected me emotionally, physically. And it was just very hard to navigate the whole thing. Like, you know, your support system, like you're trying to figure out what's the right support system. Um, because it's so taboo, often even doctors didn't quite know how to talk to you about it physically or emotionally, like what you were going through. Mm -hmm. uh, my husband probably felt like it was even more taboo for him um, going right. through it. And after the you mean, pregnancy... You mean taboo for him to talk about it? Yeah, know, with or, yeah, okay. with yeah, with other, you know, finding other people who had gone through it like like he had. Um, so, you know, what, what was supposed to be a happy journey ended up being a struggle of almost four years for us. Uh, and coming out of that, uh, you know, he, my husband is a tech entrepreneur and we, we were just kind of really baffled that something that was so important to people, um, was so misunderstood. Um, there was just such a gap in data and research for women and the impact that, um, all, you know, all our gynecological health has and reproductive health has on us and, and our outcomes, that we thought, okay, we need we need to really kind of think about how to use technology to improve access, um, improve um, people's knowledge, and then through that also start closing the data gap for women's health. And that's the that was how Parlo was born. And um, like, at what point did you? I mean, did you have any? Did you or he have any previous experience of doing health related businesses or companies or you know, like what was your sort of baseline? You said he was a tech entrepreneur, but I don't know if he'd ever done anything in health tech or I don't know. He hadn't done in health tech, but he had done in climate. So, you know, so definitely kind of like areas that um, requires a bit more education, a little right. bit more bets. Um, yeah. So he had done um, in climate. I had done some investing in health, but primarily um, medical devices rather than necessarily d digital health. 
But having gone through what we had gone through for four years, we really knew the user very well. Yeah. Um, and I think where, you know, where companies and products have evolved is that we've moved away from being kind of product pushers to putting the user at the center of design. Um, and that was one of the things that we kind of really brought to the table together was we really understood the user as we were building around it. And what did or does what, what what was the initial sort of use case that you were trying to build for when you started Parlor? So for us, it was a lot about educating women and their partners about preconception health. So I think it was really kind of trying to move away from this conversation around fertility being so reactive and only really kind of tuning in to your fertility once you're already experiencing a problem. Yeah. But really kind of getting people to think more proactively about the importance of the months leading or years even leading up to um, you trying to have children. So better knowledge of your cycle, better knowledge of your fertility, better knowledge of your sperm. Um, so it was a lot around that. And it was a lot around also looking at a very holistic approach to health. Cause I think very often it's so easy to just compartmentalize things like, okay, this is the, you know, this is the medicine you're going to take, but then you completely ignore things like mental health, nutrition, movement, lifestyle, which when it comes to reproductive health is so interlinked, right? Like you know, women's hormones and their cycles will dictate how they feel, how, their calorie, the calorie needs, how they how they might move. So it's such a misunderstood or under under um, researched area that we really wanted to kind of bring that um, holistic view and approach. And was there like anything? What was a rat? When what was the best available, nearest available service or information source or you know what what yeah? What was the baseline? I guess. Yeah, we were, I mean, we, what we were really trying to disrupt were the very expensive clinics, right? So you, okay. you go down, you go down Harley Street and there are some great women's health clinics and you walk in there and there is a mental health coach, there's a nutritionist, there's an OBGYN, you can get your supplements, you can get your scan, et cetera. Like, but I mean, 5,000 pounds later, you walk out yeah. the door, which is just completely un- inaccessible or you're waiting for months and years under the NHS. Um, but when the clock is ticking, um, that's kind of, you know, very precious time. Or sometimes, unfortunately, like, you know, if you are of a certain age, the NHS will be like, well, you know, your chances are so low that we're not even going to treat you. So right. that's what we really wanted to disrupt. We wanted to use technology to really bridge that gap. So make it as cheap as possible for people to get educated and find the products that could work for them and then also get access to the experts that could help them. And you know how 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 did it go? I mean, how is it going? How what you know? What's yeah, the what's the journey been like so far? Yeah, it, it's it's been a few roller coasters. So we launched right before the pandemic. So we had probably like what nine months of normal life before the pandemic hit. Uh, and when we first launched, we had the opportunity for people to come. They could do um, initial assessments. They could um, have chats with nutritionists, doctors, and mental health coaches. And, and then the pandemic hit. Um, and suddenly what we realized was, gosh, um, how do we make the experts that we work with um, just reach a lot more women? Um, than kind of the one-to-ones that we had. And we ended up funding a whole year worth of work through grants. So we got awarded grants from Innovate UK, the Wellcome Trust, on providing a digital first approach to women's health because so much of like the clinic's 
had shut or had turned to primary care to really right. kind of tackle COVID. Um, so we ended up launching our first um, cohort-based learning programs. Um, and at the time, we had already been you know, in the market for a year and a half. And we started to realize that even though we had kind of initially gone out with helping women improve knowledge around preconception health, we started to realize that actually women come to us with very specific needs. Um, and we had certain pools of women that were coming to us. So women who um, were struggling with PCOS symptoms, um, women who were struggling with endometriosis symptoms, yeah. um, uh, struggling with IVF or pregnancy loss. Um, so we so we started to actually create, curate um, and get programs and signpost people to products within each one of these journeys. Uh, and also, because it just became a lot more personalized and that's kind of how we then evolved. So now women come to us with those very specific needs um, and they work with experts as part of cohorts because what we noticed is so much of women's health is very taboo so the fact that you actually are in a group with uh, other women going through the same thing as you is mm. just as helpful and you learn just as much um, than on one-to-one -one consultations and it just creates okay. a really great bond um, so we have those programs and now as part of Holland and Barrett we also have products okay like supplements and vitamins and such yeah yeah, exactly, exactly. So we, you know, so like you mentioned earlier, earlier this year, we got acquired by Holland and Barrett. And, you know, Holland and Barrett has has this brilliant goal, an amazing goal to reach um, 100 million lives by 2025 um, and make health and well-being a way of life for, for all these people. And women's health has always been a category uh, that they've really wanted to focus on. And um, we sit in this division that's called Wellness Futures, which is really the kind of looking at where is health going so what are you know where where's where is the future of health and there's a, a, a recognition that <clears throat> it's really important to be there for the entire journey of a woman's reproductive lifespan and provide the education the service and then also the products and so, products so really kind of like having all of that wraparound service around the products uh, so when I met them, um, we brought that to the table. We brought the education, we brought the experts, we brought the services, and they had the products. So it, it felt like a really great um, marriage of of, uh, of propositions. Yeah, I know Holland and Barrett are trying very hard to move into this wellness space. They're already in it, but but really trying to own that kind of journey, if you like. You know, yeah. Um, I think that's really interesting because they've got like. 800 or so locations across the UK plus the online. So I think they've got this fantastic reach um, to be actually, actually, like you say, make a huge impact. So 100 million lives by 2025. Um, yeah. And it's so far, I just find, I, I, some part, part of me finds it so funny that there, there's like, you know, that women's health has been so under um, funded, under addressed, that it has to be talked about like women's health. You know what I mean? In that sort of, yeah. you know, in like quotation marks, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. Like, it's hell. It's, it should just be health, shouldn't it? Well, yeah, well, I mean, you know, I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I mean, I know, I know there are specific biological things about women that are different to men. I, I totally understand that without wishing to open up like a whole debate about gender, but that's a separate issue. But just conceptually, you know, but I just think it's a bit, a bit funny that it has to be that always in like quotation marks, you know? Yeah. Um, I think it's a bit of a shame, but we are where we are, I guess. And it's good that it's at least being looked at properly. Yeah, yeah, couldn't agree more. And so, like, how was it? Well, I mean, I, I know from my perspective or my journey, you know, my my wife and I, she she I think she was similar age to you when, when she, we started trying for children. And, you know, she had a couple of miscarriages and, 
you know, to the point around the the, the taboo nature of it, particularly, you know, I experienced it obviously as a husband. And it is really emotionally difficult to deal with. You know, it just really, really is. Yeah. Um, and there isn't really any, I mean, I don't know. We uh, It's very hard to know where to go or what to do about it, yeah. but it is yeah. extremely emotional. Yeah. Really and traumatic. It, it, yeah. And we, and that's what we, we kind of, re- I mean, realized personally, but then when we were due, when, when we were in the pandemic, we were working with the Welcome Trust and um, they had actually, um, released this call, call you know, kind of like a research call, saying you know, within the pandemic, were there certain taboo health areas uh, that really was underserved um, during the pandemic, and we had actually identified um, miscarriages being one of the areas. Right. Uh, and we did a large research. Um, we had more than 400 women um, respond to our research. And one of the biggest things was that mental health wasn't um, addressed um, within the NHS and that they were just so left to figure out on their own, which is still the case. Yeah. And it's kind of crazy, right? Yeah, I saw a news piece. Now you mention it. I can't remember. It was last week. Something to do with statutory leave associated with miscarriages. Did you see this? Yeah, yeah. They've been trying to pass the bill for years now, um, because especially miscarriage, because, you know, after 12 weeks or especially after 24 weeks, you do get um, some rights. But if it's before 12, you've gone through you've gone through pregnancy, but you get no rights. So a lot of women have to go straight back to work after something so traumatic. Right. Which I mean, yeah, hugely traumatic, both emotionally and physically. So how did you know how how was it going? Did it, did it get passed? I don't know. It did not. It did not. They didn't have the reading. So it's still no. it's been a disappointment. Yeah. Um, there more people are talking about it, though, which I think is, you know, helpful. Right, it was on BBC News, which I'm yeah. pretty sure it hadn't been on BBC News before. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's it's interesting. I'd like to get into more detail about it, because obviously, like, how like how do we start to change perceptions around this and is that something that that parlor wants to try and do and that you want to try and do which is create more of a, di- a discussion an open discussion around this around yeah. this area particularly with men or, or is it sort of without men um no absolutely with men i mean i think it's you know it's not just pregnancy loss i think you're starting to see more discussion around a lot of the different challenges that women go through. So PCOS, endometriosis, endometriosis has now become a really big um, area of um, of focus. Uh, pregnancy loss and menopause. Menopause has had, um, a, again, a really big area of focus. And that's where we want to play. We really want to be um, a, a voice of change aco- across these different reproductive life stages. Well, let's get into that, into the second part of the show. So we're going to stop for a commercial break right now. We'll be back in two minutes with um, with Lisa Chan, the CEO and founder of um, uh, of Parlor Health. We're back in two minutes. Hello, and welcome back to this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost, and my guest, Lena Chan from Parlor Health, um, which aims to deliver both the physical and mental support for um, women throughout their reproductive lives. So before the break, we were talking about the discussion, the wider discussion, the normalization of the discussion around the different stages of women's reproductive health, whether that's preconception, conception, pregnancy, pregnancy loss, PCOS, endometriosis, menopause. That's quite a big set of of things, right? That's quite a big, do you view them as a continuum or not like that? Or how do you start to get to grips with with even, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a huge, you know, 
continuum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's interesting you say that because I, you know, the way I see it is that um, <clears throat> we need to start tackling, we need to start engaging women as early as their first period. And I think um, women's experiences across these different stages can actually have a knock-on effect on the future ones. So, for example, you know, we know that women who <clears throat> have PCOS have higher risk of um, infertility or miscarriage. And, you know, if you've had a very difficult um, fertility journey, uh, you come out of that time very depleted. Does that then also have a knock-on effect on your menopause journey, right? So right. I actually think it's really very interwoven um our, our 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 experience across these journeys so the it's i don't really see it as um separate i think it's actually really important that we help women start connecting these dots because um, it's not necessarily like isolated right like for not, example i know that we did a show one of the early shows we did with was the lady called lisa falkend from femtech insider yeah and she founded a, a business focused on her company was focused on pcos because she was a sufferer of pcos so for those of you who don't know from PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome, um, what are the statistics? Is it one in 10 women, one in 20? It's pretty high. One in 10, it? yeah. One, one in, in 10. 10, yeah. Yeah, I thought so. So one in 10 women suffer from it. And, and she threw out the statistic, which blew me away, that it, it takes on average eight separate doctor's appointments before it's diagnosed on average, yeah. right? So that means yeah. that there's some people that are having significantly more. So it's often misdiagnosed as all kinds of different things because the symptoms can look individually like all kinds of different things. Yeah. And the same thing with endometriosis. I mean, endometriosis also has the statistics of, of one in 10. It takes on average 10 to 13 years to diagnose. Um, wow. And, yeah. And, you know, and these are what? women who, yeah, they're, and so the one in 10 is actually underestimated. And these are women who are suffering from extremely painful periods. You know, it's, I mean, it's a whole body inflammatory condition. So not just painful periods, but it's, you know, the, it affects them so much. And, you know, we're in a society that in a way normalizes pain, um, especially right. for women. Or, you know, you kind of get gaslit when you go tell your your, your health professionals. Uh, okay. And it's also a, a category that a lot of women who discover actually, you know, often when women discover that they are, that they have endometriosis when they are struggling to conceive. Um, and then they will actually be listened to and get further investigation. But it, so again, it, yeah, it kind of, that, that's it what Lisa said. A lot, effect, of it, right? a lot of it comes that the actual key diagnosis comes when they're trying to get pregnant, basically, because then it's at that point, it sort of becomes a almost like a rule out thing. Yeah. It's like, right, OK, you've tried all these other things. OK, well, maybe it's this. And then those other 15 different doctor's appointments have sort of led up to that moment. Yeah. So I guess it's around how do you try and cut through and get it diagnosed earlier or get it understood earlier or addressed earlier. Yeah, exactly. And, and you imagine the mental health impact that it has oh, on somebody, right? It's like if you, if you, if your pain is being ignored from when you were a teenager or, you know, you're struggling with minimized um, or yeah. sort of, you know, told to, yeah, like you're making a fuss or, you know, exactly, exactly. And that, and I think that's the root issue. Um, and that's what it comes back to, uh, you know, so little research has been done on the women physiology or women has been included in research. So mm. that's why it takes so long for, 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 for these conditions to be diagnosed. And it really does have a detrimental physical and emotional impact. So for us, is is that knowledge is is teaching women that they that you know these are these symptoms are real learning to advocate for themselves um until we can get the the data and the medical system to catch up on those like you need to really educate the patient how to advocate for themselves because it is quite a bit you know it, how, it, it does take quite a bit of effort so that's a really interesting point which i think is worth picking up on so 
this is something that's, I guess, been given quite rightly a lot more coverage, I would say, over the last five to 10 years, which is that the, okay, I'm going to probably get this wrong because I'm not a doctor, but I'm going to say whatever. So apologies in advance. But the, a large percentage, most of it, of, of, of scientific clinical data is in drug development or, or treatment development is, is been based on male research subjects. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. Is that correct? A hundred percent. Yeah. Women has only been included in clinical trials um, since 1992. So that's I mean, nuts. Uh, yeah. So there. You should you should read this book called um, "The Invisible Woman." Um, it's brilliant, but it just shows how systematically we've been left out of research, even to the level of car seats, like car seat, like the not the car seats, the um, the uh, seat belts. I think only yes. as, as a, yeah. So I, I think it was only now that they actually started to um, do the the seatbelt research based on the size of a woman's uh, a woman's body. Is that right? Yeah. That's <clears throat> yeah. Focus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. What? And yeah, that's completely should, nuts. Yeah, just Google it. It's a, they they did the first study this year only. I think it was yeah, just it was the first <laughs> oh one. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Okay. So, yeah, and and the reason why women women were left out of research often is because of our hormones. Because our hormones, you know, because in in a research, you can imagine in okay. a clinical trial, you need to keep okay. as many things constant as possible. So you're testing just the variance of that one component that you're trialing, right? So okay. um, once you okay. add the women's hormones, it adds this level of variability that is very hard to control for. So it was always easy to not have the women and just have the, the male physiology. Um, I mean, the COVID vaccine wasn't tested on women. Um, so, is that right? Yeah. So it's, you know, so it's... it's, it's is that uh, really true? It, it yeah. wasn't... And why was that? It just... What, what, the same... The, I mean, probably for speed, they just needed to make sure that they could get it out. Um, but you know, women, our physiology is different. Our hormones are different. Um, so it, it, it has historically been easier to not include women. And only now, um, women are starting to get included in, in research trials. That's, that's incredible. And so, yeah, I mean, I, when I heard that for the first time, which again, I think was from doing the show, I mean, cause again, it's sort of, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And it, it's not like I've been in drug discovery or, you know, clinical research or anything like that. But when I heard about it, it I mean, the way that you explain it, I, I can sort of see why they came to that conclusion, you know. But similarly, like common sense might suggest if half the people giving these drugs to, you know, potentially are women. Um, yeah. That's, so you even, even mean, for example, like chemotherapy drugs that targeted cervical cancer or breast cancer weren't originally tested they must have been tested on women I, I can't I can't speak specifically to cancer treatments on breast and but I I, do, I don't know those specifically no, it's just, I wouldn't just, be surprised just <laughs> yeah that's what I mean right I'd be kind of interested to see how how they would have tested a drug for cervical cancer on a on a guy but um so how just to try and bring it back around into a bit of focus again that's is that do, does that change happen through lobbying or is it just you know like including women in clinical trials just as a base or even in for goodness sake seatbelt trials I mean unbelievable is um is that lobbying that's got that in there or is it just generally people have looked at that and said that just doesn't make any sense and they've kind of changed it themselves you know what I mean Uh, how's that sort of like come about I mean the seatbelt thing is just bonkers but but anyway yeah I mean I think it has to be a bit of everything honestly I think 
consumers um, have become more aware. I think the female consumer has very changed, has, you know, has changed a right. lot over time. So, you know, things like the Me Too movements, like all, all these um, movements that we've seen happen in the last three to five years where women has been given a bigger voice, I think is a, is a really big um, positive step. Uh, I think the the emergence of femtech, femtech so having yeah. even though so little of funding is given to women to and to femtech, I mean, it's still ridiculous that it's just two percent. Um, it's uh, you're starting to close those gaps because you're starting to have more female founders focused on areas that people weren't really talking about, um, and then you're all also getting people who are lobbying more. Um, and often, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that no men do it, but I think often it is the experience. It's somebody who has gone through that lived experience, has gone through that issue, and has that drive to say, okay, things need to change. Um, that you then start um, hearing those voices, and it becomes lobbying. But I think it, it really needs to be kind of like a. I think all a lot of organizations need to do it. The consumer lobby, you know, lobby um, institutions, but then um, companies also have a responsibility to close those gaps. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I mean, so so yeah, I think it's obvious. So on this issue of femtech, so femtech, for those of you listening who aren't necessarily familiar with the kind of the venture space necessarily we have we're a broad church Lena so we get you know we have all kinds of people listening how would you describe femtech to people because there are different people think about it differently which we can get into yeah I mean I I kind of explain it kind of more simply as their businesses and technology businesses specifically that put the female user or the reproductive you know what people who have a reproductive health um, at the core of their design um so it could range from tracking apps to people innovating like on the tampons exactly like flow clue um to uh platforms that are delivering gynecological consultations to even um, companies that are innovating on tampons. So you're looking at kind of the reproductive physiology or the reproductive um, lifespan and stages, and you're creating products and services to really help them in that journey. And like, just going to throw this out there. Do you think that that any femtech business should be founded by a woman or or do you think there is a role from or I, I mean i i have my own opinion on this but do you what, what's your view on it given that definition i mean it given my experience in the last couple of years it's yeah. helpful to have uh women in the team or at least people who have that lived experience yeah um tackling the problem because you bring a level uh, you bring a level of empathy and you bring a level of understanding um to the design process of the you know just kind of the product design process which is very very helpful um yeah. you know I try, I try not to be biased when I hire for my team um but you know it's we, we pretty much have mostly hired people who have experience the conditions that we're tackling you know so right. women which women, then therefore they understand know. yeah they understand the pain points right and that's what you're trying yeah. to solve for is, is is those pain points i think that makes it i mean i i look i'm a big believer in authenticity right particularly when you're sort of starting out as a company either it's the founding team or you know the, the initial management team or whatever 
you have to have some element of authenticity. So I remember when we first started Parkdog, we were on a we were on an accelerator. So we're you know we're we're all about increasing access to diagnostic testing by allowing yeah. it to happen through the smartphone, focused on cardiovascular disease and, and and so forth. But we were on one of these accelerators, health accelerators. There are lots of people on it. Well, a few people on it, and there was one that was he. It was a man, a male founder, sole founder, who was founding a business for a platform for women to support them with postnatal depression, postpartum depression. Yeah. Massively laudable aim, massively laudable aim, obviously. But like, we were all a bit like, like, dude, like, do you not think that like, you should get like, at least like a, a woman co-founder. Right, right, Like, do right. you not want to at least, you know, because, you know, I don't know if you've been on those acceleratory type things, we have to kind of like, kind of pitch and kind of explain and ask questions and ask questions and like, Everyone's sort of looking kind of funnily about like because you've got questions about the condition, you know what I mean? And yeah. like like yeah. like the questions I had to you about, well, you know, what's your journey and what's your story and how are you doing? And you know, it's not like women have an exclusivity over that necessarily, but but it makes it you just have a barrier, you know? Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. I was like, I would, yeah. I, my advice to him was just find a female co-founder just find a female co-founder and then you're cool right and you, yeah. you know everyone understands it takes a team to build a business yeah but i just i just don't think you're gonna how are you gonna understand even what to say or have any authenticity yeah it was, yeah. It was kind of, yeah and I, and i think when it comes to health there's an element of trust right that it's really important to build and i think you try you build trust into not just these two ways, but I think two primary ways. And is one is making sure that it's scientifically backed. But then I think two is this lived experience. Like that's why these community, like you know, a lot of these like support communities can get so viral, right? So because you have like this, you know that this person has gone through it, so they can really empathize. Um, so yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think authenticity, lived experience gives you a, a, a kind of empathy and credibility, definitely. Yeah, not least with your customers, right? I mean, I yeah. think that like as you say consumers are being more choosy about where they go particularly with their health so yeah you know, I can't um yeah I just I just could see images of him being on stage and doing these presentations and stuff tech insider or whatever it is and you know women in tech and then there's like women and then just him talking about women anyway yeah. um, I thought it would be kind of a bit strange so um so within the conditions that you do deal with PCOS and endometriosis and things like that, one of the ones that I want to come on to, we're going to have a commercial, no, a final commercial break in a second is menopause, which again, sample of one it, over the last, I would say 18 months to two years has sort of rocketed up the media slash news slash general discussion awareness, you know, yeah. table. I don't know if you'd agree with that. Yeah, 100% agree. Um, it, 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 it has definitely kind of shot straight up it definitely helps to have celebrities talk about it i feel like a lot of the okay. areas that do get attention you know celebrities have talked talk, spoken about who is, it who are the celebrities that particularly davina mccall davina okay yeah, that's a big so one was, if you get yeah. davina that's a big one yeah, so she was very outspoken about menopause, and I got, I think, you know, created really a really kind of great movement um, behind it. Holland and Barrett actually did a, has been doing a lot in menopause. So um, okay. they have two, they had two campaigns, one in 2018 called Menopause, um, and then they just launched one this year around um, Pause and Listen, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and they've trained something like 4,000 staff. Uh, to talk about the menopause, so people can wow. come to uh, to Holland and Barrett and get 
health and wellness um, advice and tips for you know when when they're struggling with perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And I, look, I think it's great. It's wonderful that that has happened, and I really hope that it happens for other parts of women's health. Because until you know, I've, I, and I say this a lot uh, at Holland Barrett. I think until we really normalize all these conversations about women's health, it's very hard for you to say that you've democratized care. And to your point, like you know, I, I talk a lot about how we need to bring her health on the high street because that's that's when you really democratize health, right? Like people yeah. can access it anywhere. Like they can access it when they walk into a retail store. It's like you're making it as accessible as possible. And over time, yeah. it'd be great to drop the her is just health yeah. on the high street, right? So yeah, it's like the, if you're a woman, these are the services. If you're a man, these are the yeah. services. Yeah, and it's just easy to access. You you get educated, you you tap in. And I'm sure that's kind of, you know, where where your your product is headed is really kind of making that um, knowledge as 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 easy for somebody to connect with so that they can actually come out of the ill health and really be more in the well-being and proactive yeah. about their I mean, health. Right? Pock particularly is, is right, is, is sort of focused on um, within certain pathways, so cardiovascular health, type 2 diabetes, female hormone panel, actually, we're working on in early stage development um, because there's huge friction. Anywhere that there's huge friction around access to testing, but there's huge value in knowing that particular quantitative level and that there's a value slash incentive slash requirement to test regularly. So longitudinal data has value. Um, And finally, that there's actually a really valid, rich downstream post-test pathway. So for example, in cardiovascular disease, it could be a statin prescription, healthy living, diet plan, weight loss, repeat testing that's actually really quite rich behavior change exactly. similarly you know with 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 the female hormone panel it would be around understanding your fertility your cycles how that might overlay with your fertility journey or the reproductive health your diet your your weight these type of things so, yeah and, and type 2 diabetes is similar to the cardiovascular pathway so we're trying to facilitate that whole pathway by um, enabling someone to do lab grade tests but using their smartphone but rep, having replicated the technology backbone of the lab. Because everyone loves the lab technology backbone, right? So the sample goes in and it goes through the system and the results come out the other end. Right? Yeah. So in order to play in any of those spaces in a meaningful way, aligned with healthcare providers, you have to be able to replicate that, which is what we've which is what we've done. Um, and, and yes, it's about access. So where is there a problem with access? Where does access really, really help? Not just on a day-to-day basis, but particularly with health inequality. Yeah, there's a key. I mean, you know, and I'm sure we can get into that as well, which is I suspect that the the problems that you're talking about become more exacerbated the further you go into communities where there's deprivation, where there's lack of access, where they're underserved, you know, where they might be ethnic minorities or whatever it is, Um, you know, so actually access and coming up with a way to work out how to get to those people and not expecting them to go to their local GP surgery where they can't even go anyway at the moment because there's such a huge backlog. So, you know, Trying to assess those things in our part of the world is what we're really about. Yeah, 100%. Couldn't agree more. Cool. Well, look, we are going to stop for our final break. And then we will be back with Lena Chan, who is the CEO of Parlor Health, part of Holland and Barrett Group, for the final part of this week's Health Tech Hour. See you in two minutes. Hello, and welcome back to the final part of this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost, and my guest, Lena Chan. So, Lena, um, let's talk about... let's talk about the menopause and how there's been such a big change well i well again i think there's been a huge change in how that's perceived and the awareness around it and the discussion around it over the last two years what have you seen from your perspective at at parlor health 
Um, I've definitely seen a lot more conversation, um, a lot more awareness um, so that women know what to look out for. I mean, with the stories you hear of women being prescribed antidepressants or kind of, you know, thinking that something was so really, really wrong with them physically, emotionally, when it was um, the menopause, it's 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 great to start seeing that education um, and people talking about it. So I think it, you know, it goes back to the taboo busting, right? The more people talk about it, the more you share the symptoms, the more people realize that, okay, this is, you know, this is something it's a life stage. It's not me going crazy. And then you can start getting the support that you need. And that's always the first step, right? Like once you know what it is, you can then start getting the support. Um, and I think there's, there's, you know, for me, it's really important. Um, and it's definitely something that we kind of live by a lot um, in Parla is really reframing how women interact with themselves and their bodies and the stages that they're going through. Like, I think historically there's been a lot of negative um, words or even negative ways in which we uh, talk about ourselves and our bodies. And there's a lot of kind of dialogue around the menopause that categorizes it as a disease when really right. the menopause is a stage, right? Like it's, it's a, yeah, it's a it's, life stage. It, it is. An, yeah. It's, yeah. It's not, it's yeah. not a disease. It's a, it's a disease that everybody gets. Does that yeah. count? It's like yeah. aging. It's like right. aging. Yeah, exactly. And and I think it's really, really important that we start <laughs> shifting that, that dialogue. Crazy. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, so I got diagnosed with a menopause. Like it's a, it's a life stage <laughs> that you're in. Oh, shit. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, that's um yeah, um, that's yeah. That's and so I think it's important that we shift that. Um we reframe how women reframe that and kind of start looking at this midlife stage that of, of something that can be wonderful, that you know it's 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 a it's a brilliant time in your life. And and whether you're on HRT or not, there are also a lot of other things that you can do from a nutrition lifestyle. Um, standpoint to to have you have a great life um you know yeah uh, should be, i mean it should be it should be it, there, there should without question be enough support to be able to understand what's happening to you and yeah. to make the best of it in whatever whatever constellation that is determined hormone you know pharmaceutical non-pharmaceutical whatever it happens to be right so is that i mean i don't it doesn't sound like that's where we were certainly yeah, that, that might be where we're going to. Yeah, I don't know. yeah, it's where I hope we go to is really kind of realizing and kind of empowering women with that decision. Say, okay, well, you know, HRT is for me or is not for me, but then at least having those resources to say I do need it or I don't need it, um, having the right assessments, but then also having all the other products and services to to work around and complement that, right? Because HRT yeah. doesn't work for everybody. Um, and some people will want to at least be looking at a combination of HRT plus lifestyle changes. And some okay. people just actually don't even want to go on the HRT. So what are then right. other things that you can do? And it's really, really important. It's such a, you know, because menopause has um, over 30 symptoms, it's very hard. It's very easy to get diagnosed with something else. Um, right. you know, so like so often um the you know, women women will be diagnosed with depression when actually they're going through the their menopause and phase right? and it's a phase yeah exactly so i think it's it's i'm starting to see more and more positive movements towards well, that like kind of closing that yeah. knowledge gap and then enabling women to get the right access to the right support so we had we did a great show a few months back with the ceo of something called ember e-m-b-r labs yeah which is um it looks like a kind of an an Apple watch, but it's like a slab of ceramic and it sits on your wrist and it targets your thermoreceptors on your wrists. 
So they have a, it came out at MIT and um, it, it, it provides a certain kind of therm electrical actually simulations, your thermoreceptors that alters your perception of hot and cold. So it was developed with hot flushes in mind. Um, and off the back of that, the CEO came on, who was a woman, Liz. And um, the thing that we got into, which I thought was really interesting, was like the so what about the hot flushes? Because I think that like, you know, the cliche of menopause is the hot flush, I would say. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Know that's the sort of, you know, cliche sort of vision of it. And and by making it a cliche or by it becoming a cliche, it sort of like minimizes it a bit. Yeah. So we got into like the so what of it, like what is the value of having something that can help you thermoregulate and what is the downside of, of hot flushes? And she was explaining, which I thought was, you know, I think this is just a hugely valuable topic to talk about, is like the impact on women's work lives and home lives, whether it's depression or stress or, you know, feeling like they can't perform at the level that they used to and the lack of sympathy from an employer or whatever it might be, or even just them being hard on themselves because of what's happening in their body um, actually has something, I can't remember the figure that she quoted, but some sort of huge amount of lost days or lost productivity yeah. in the workforce, as well yeah. as people being diagnosed with depression when they're not depressed necessarily, you know, yeah. and just this huge kind of downstream, like we said, downstream impact of something that is minimized by you know, mainstream culture. If yeah. That makes sense. Well, and you know, and, and it's funny because um, you know, we we've been doing a lot of research and we've done a lot of um, user study about the menopause. And really, you know, the menopause, even the term menopause, is really kind of like the last day, the, the day after twelve months of not having your, your period. But okay. a woman can be in perimenopause, which are the years before your menopause for a very long time. Yeah, like ten and years some, almost. I yeah, think, at the it could outside, be ten right? years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And some of the first. Um, symptoms of perimenopause are actually not the hot flushes. Like it, no. they tend to be actually the neuro, the neurological, the kind of, you know, a lot of the symptoms that you would probably associate with poor sleep or being stressed out, but actually those are the beginnings of perimenopause. Um, so I, I agree with you. Like, I think when we kind of say, or or the kind of cliche of, oh, it needs to be a hot, you know, a hot, hot, hot flush. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, you kind of, kind of, women aren't realizing that there's like, 31 other other symptoms that they that they should be or they can be tracking um and then it makes it so misunderstood um what are the lifestyle changes obviously I've, like pharmaceutical intervention hrt hormone, you know that's more probable what what are the realistic lifestyle things that people can actually do that actually have an impact um, there are a number. There are a number of them. So we we actually group um, we group the symptoms into you know there are some that are more physical. There are some that are more neurological, and for each one of them, there are areas that can help um, more. Um, so um, exercising is a really big one. Um, making sure that you increase uh, muscle mass. So starting to actually do weight training is, is okay. very much advised. Um, in menopause, yeah. So, like, you know, swap swap your running shoes for a couple of weights is is is, is advisable. And why um, is that? Why does that help? Do you know? That's you, so you do lose you do lose mass, like you do lose. Yeah, when you get um, older. Yeah, or just you do, or do, you, no, do women the, lose it oh, because right. of the drop because of the drop of of certain hormones. It is oh, wow. harder. Yeah, so that's that's why you will have um, issues of osteoporosis um, and also like just harder to gain muscle. And if you do weight bearing exercises, this actually helps you with your bone health. So actually, doing weight training um, is 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 very good. So add the protein powder, the creatine, and do some weights. Um, that that will help. Um, 
and there are a number of things that you can do uh, uh, from a diet standpoint because you know, one of the big hormones that drop is estrogen, but then there are estrogen available in certain foods, like you know, not at the same, not at the same type and the levels that you would from an ovulation, but at least including um, some of those foods into your diet. So soy, soy is one, one big one. Um, and you know, supplements, supplements also um, do work a lot, but a lot of it is actually the foundations of a, you know, what we probably see as a whole foods um, diet, right? So right. really making sure that you have enough protein, anti-inflammatory um, uh, <laughs> antioxidants, like omega, your omega-3s and your antioxidants. And, and I think what's really, really important, and this is probably one that is, it is probably a little harder for, for those who are going through perimenopause and menopause is sleep, right? Like we know right. that sleep is just so fundamentally important for our health and well-being, and it is one of the areas that actually gets quite disrupted um, with the hormone hormone shifts. Um, but it is, you know, it is it is an, it is an area that uh, we always recommend people to to try to get some support on sleep. And then, um, I like I think that that's super interesting. And I, you know, I think that this type of discussion is something that hopefully is going has happened will happen more. And you know, I think that the more discussion, the more understanding about this you know, the more value that there is and that the easier it'll be all around. Let's talk about how all of these things overlay through the lens of, of health inequality, which has become a little bit of a buzzword. Let's let's just be honest about it. But I think it fundamentally means that the kind of there's a disparity in terms of ability to access healthcare and also your likelihood of being healthier dependent upon your level of socioeconomic status, your 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 ethnicity your physical location in the country and it sort of gets lumped up in this concept of health inequality which you know fair enough has to be labeled somehow but yeah it, it kind of covers a lot of different things how does this area of women's reproductive health overlay or underlay across this sort of concept of, of inequalities yeah i mean i think um there there's you know there's a lot of data that shows uh that outcomes are worse for minorities and communities um and i think until you know until we address that we are not taking steps really towards really um closing the care gap so it really is important that every company that is working anybody who's working on healthcare uh really thinks about what are the best ways for us to reach access you know improve access to to those communities um and you know part of it is uh people from different backgrounds have different cultural um kind of let's say like lenses so to really being able to build a brand that can talk to them is very important or being Mm -hmm. you know inclusive is very important um, and I think also just recognizing uh, that it is, you know, it is also a population that has it has had a history of not being heard, not being believed. So there is there is a little bit more nurturing that we do need to do, and more inclusion that we do we, we do need to do. And I mean, we we hear so many stories of, you know, black women going to the hospitals and not being believed the same way if you know if they were if they weren't yeah. of color. And those those are kind of the the you know inherent biases that we really need to try to make sure we step away from, um, and you know, and really kind of keep it in the ethos of our brands that we need to bring those voices um, and design for those voices. And is I'm guessing, but I might be wrong, that the level of tabooness, if that's a phrase, might be different around different things in different communities. Is that fair? A hundred percent fair. A hundred percent fair. Um, I think there are you know there are certain communities that. You know, it certainly when it comes to pregnancy loss, you know, we've had cases where 
um, a woman's feelings or what she had gone through was minimized or, you know, they were kind of just told, well, it's not a pregnancy. It's not, so, so yes, it, it is, it is, it is quite, it is difficult to navigate that, but it's not impossible. Um, I think it would probably just requires, uh, it, it does require a, a, a broader level of educating um, and making sure, like you said, like I think, you know, the authenticity is bringing people, um, a diverse um, group of people to help with the product design, product messaging, right. marketing right. Um, makes those, you know, accessible. Like, you know, if you're going to be mark, kind of running a, a women's health campaign and you just have white blonde people, um, it's mm. going to be very hard to connect with certain communities. So having right. to just have that consciousness on including the voices um, is really important. That makes sense. Um, so in the last couple of minutes of the show I just normally I want to try and cover I normally try and cover you know it's tough out there a little bit at the moment and you know particularly for sort of healthcare entrepreneurs or any entrepreneurs and things like that so like having started a business scaled the business in COVID like what are the kind of the few key lessons that you would that you feel like is worth sharing with the you know wider community so to speak resilience give us a pep pep talk (laughs) what was that Resilience, that's the number one. Um, make sure, I mean, I'd say if you're an entrepreneur, you haven't started a business, start some start something in you know that you're very, very passionate about because I think probably more lemons get thrown at you. <laughs> um, so really kind of that passion is what makes you stick stick through stuff. Um, and I'd say, you know, be really resilient and be very optimistic because you never know. You never know kind of how things um how things will pan out. And I think having that optimism will always allow you to see opportunities um, where you wouldn't necessarily. So uh, if you're going to be starting your business, do do try to have that kind of, you know, mindset for sure. And how do you kind of maintain that, you know, when times are tough? Is it about the mission and you can stay true to the mission? And, you know, how does that play out? Um, mission and my sneakers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what, the running, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's funny. My husband, when he sees me very frustrated, he brings my sneakers and he's like, "Look, I think it's time for you to go to the gym." Dude, I'm I'm um, exactly the, I'm exactly the same. My wife's like, "Could you just go and do some exercise, please?" Yeah, could you just yeah. just go and exercise, and then then let's talk about this, and then let's see how you yeah. feel about this issue. Yeah, exactly. I think it's you know I'm I'm very driven for the mission. I mean, it's part and it's what keeps me going and um, it keeps me kind of thinking and iterating. But I think it's really important, especially as a founder, to take those moments of self-care. And it it doesn't necessarily Mm. have to be you know, a, a huge vacation, but it's those moments, like 30 oh, that'd minutes be nice, or an though. hour. That'd be yeah, nice. that'd be really nice. Yeah. That'd be great. <laughs> when do I get to do that? I know. <laughs> um, but yeah, moments to clear your head is important. Good. All right. Well, look, Lena, we've come to the end of the show. Lena Chan, founder of Parlor. Thank you so much. Expert on women's health. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank you to everyone for listening. And, you know, have a good and happy merry lead up to Christmas. Thank you so much. You too. Thank you very much for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, everyone.